0: This morning we will continue our series through the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. But first let's do our little Old Testament history review review together. And remember the idea is to try to fill in the blanks out loud with me and uh, do the hand signals if you can. We are going to get better and better at this. We've done it a couple times. I think this is about the third time. Uh, But, uh, you know, if you're new today, um, feel free to make fun of the rest of us. Uh, As we try to do this. Here we go. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 tell us about creation. Chapter 3, the temptation. Remember the serpent? The temptation and the fall of Adam and Eve. Chapter 4, Cain and Abel, the first murder. Chapter 5, just kind of boring. Genealogies. Okay. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the? flood. Chapter 9, Noah after the flood, the rainbow, right? Promise of God. Chapter 10 again, genealogies. Chapter 11, the tower of Babel. Chapter 12, the call of Abraham. Somebody help me. Let's try it one more time. Chapter 11, the 12, sorry, the call of Abraham. One day God saw the faith of Abraham and spoke to him. God said, go into a land that I will Show you, and I will make you a great and mighty nation. I will make your name great, and I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. So, Abraham, remember this one? Packed his bags, and he and his family went up around the Fertile Crescent. Think about it on a map, that Fertile Crescent we learn about in grade school, or at least we used to. I don't know what we're learning these days. But they came up to a town called Haran, which was barren. So Abraham, Abraham wondered, remember, remember this one? Abraham wondered, well, no, you're afraid to say it, but you got it. It's on the tip of your tongue. What am I doing here? Have you ever been there? You know, came to a heron which was barren, and he wondered, what am I doing here? But it wasn't time for him to get to where God was leading him yet. So God had him wait 30 years until Abraham's father, Terah, died. Finally, they moved into the promised land. But Abraham and his wife Sarah had a problem because 30 more years had passed and they still hadn't had any children. And now they're getting very old. How, how's God's promise going to be fulfilled? We haven't had any children. Finally, God kept his promise and gave a son to Abraham and Sarah who they named Isaac. Isaac was the chosen son. Isaac had two sons named Jacob and Esau. Esau was not chosen, but Jacob was chosen by God. Later, Jacob was renamed. Israel. Good. So, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, had how many sons? Twelve sons. Ten fingers, two earlobes, and twelve sons. The second youngest son's name was Joseph. Joseph seemed to have a special relationship with God and with his father. so the other sons didn't like him very much. His brothers threw him into a pit, sold him into bondage, and sent him down to (laughs) Egypt, where he lived for thirty years. Joseph eventually became Pharaoh's powerful right-hand man. After 30 years, there was a famine in the land, and the whole family moved down to Egypt Egypt. for another 30 years where they lived in peace and prosperity. After that, Pharaoh died. And so there was a new Pharaoh who didn't like uh, Joseph's family very much, which had become very large by this time, and he put them all into bondage for how many years? 400 years. After 400 years, the Egyptians had become really oppressive, and the people began to cry out to God, saying, God, get us out of this mess. My favorite thing in this whole thing, because of everything that's been going on over the last two years, so let's just do this one together, if nothing else. The people began to cry out to God, saying, God, get us out of this mess. That's it. So God called a man named Moses and told him to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses did what God asked, but Pharaoh said, no go. So God began to show His power, and through Moses He unleashed ten plagues on the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh couldn't take any more. And the last time Moses said, let my people go, Pharaoh said, okay. So Moses, kind of like packing the bags, only this time he gathered the people and led them through the Red Sea and on up to Mount Sinai where God gave them the? Ten Commandments. Moses later sent 12 spies who were also family leaders into the land that God had promised to see what enemies they might have to face. This was the same land that God had given to Abraham before his descendants moved down to Egypt to escape the famine. How many leaders came back and were all for it? Two. Good job. That was a trick, trick question. Ten leaders came back and said no go but two leaders said let's go. Unfortunately the people listened to the ten leaders and as a group they said no go. So God said, because you have no faith and you've disobeyed me, you are going to wander around in the desert for 40 years until everyone 20 and over dies. So that's what happened. And then God brought Moses to and the people to a place called Mount Nebo, <laughs> Nebo where Moses died and a new leader was selected. We'll call him General Joshua, he just happened to be one of those original two leaders who had said, let's go. Joshua led the people through the Jordan River and they divided up the land, the promised land between the 12 tribes. After Joshua died, there were seven social, economical, and spiritual ups and downs. This happened under the leadership of the judges for a period of 400 years. But after 400 years, the people said, forget the judges. God, give us a king. King." First king was? Good. The second king was? David. David. And the third king was? Solomon. They ruled a united kingdom. After Solomon, though, the kingdom was divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was called? Israel. And the southern kingdom was called? Judah. But keep in mind that all of it together was some kind still called Israel. The capital of the northern kingdom was? Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. There were ten tribes in the north, and there were two tribes in the south. After Solomon, there were 19 consecutive kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there were 20 kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. Of those kings, there were how many good kings in the north? Zero. And there were how many good kings in the south? Eight. In 722 B.C., King Shalmaneser V came down from Assyria and defeated the northern kingdom Israel. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. Let's try that, heard from them since. Let's try that again. He took the ten tribes captive, dispersed them, and we've never heard from them since. More than a hundred years later, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon came over to Judah, conquered them, and took many of the people back to Babylon for how many years? Seventy years. Seventy years later, Babylon had been conquered by the Persians, and the Persian king sent three guys back to help reestablish Judah. Their names were Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. They brought about 50,000 Jews back to Jerusalem where they rebuilt the temple, reestablished communication with God, and rebuilt the wall. Let's try that again. They rebuilt the temple. That was Zerubbabel. They reestablished... Communication with God, that was Ezra, and they rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah. Last Old Testament prophet to speak was Malachi, and he shared his word from the Lord during the time of Nehemiah after the wall had been rebuilt. After that, there were 400 years of silence from God until John the Baptist burst on the scene, shouting about Jesus Christ, saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Great job. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Give yourselves a hand. Amen. It's good to have in our hip pockets as we study Malachi. Because Malachi comes at the end of all of that. Now, let's review a little bit of our current series. First of all, please recall our discussions of the fact that the book of Malachi is presented almost entirely as a direct quotation from God. That's why I've called the series God Says. In this book we have word for word what God has said about several key issues. So far we've heard God saying to us, Remember my love. That was week one, verses one through five. Nearly always the first thing God says. In life, any life change, spiritual growth in your life is most often going to be motivated by the special love God has for you. Next, we heard God say, rectify your worship. How we love God back through worship says a lot about our hearts. Everything God wants to do in our lives starts at the the point of our worship relationship with Him. Next, we heard God say, repent of ungodly leadership. Anybody repent last week? I did. Repent of ungodly leadership. All of us lead somebody somewhere. As followers of Christ, we need to make sure our leadership points in His direction. This brings us to chapter 2, verse 10 of Malachi, where God very clearly says, and this is what we'll cover today, remain faithful in your marriages. And folks, we will need two weeks to cover this one. Next week, we'll deal more directly with the text, but today uh, we'll spend a lot of time on background information, to introducing the topic more generally, although we'll spend just a moment at the end today on the central verse of this passage, verse 16, where God scandalously says, I hate divorce. And yes, God says that right here in His Word. Now, before we get into this, I want to say something about how I hope you will listen today as I share what the Bible says about divorce. You're going to have a tendency to dwell on one particular situation. Am I right? You're going to think about one particular divorce that you know about, something that's already happened to you or to someone you love probably in the past, but you need to understand then I'm not here to talk about the past or to talk about a specific situation with all of its intricate and complicated circumstances. I am not here to talk about your previous divorce or whatever divorce may come to mind. I'm here to preach the Word of God. Let's go ahead and read the entire passage. But as we do, understand ahead of time that all of this winds up being about marriage and divorce, or as I have put it, remaining faithful in our marriages. Starting with verse 10 of chapter 2. The prophet Malachi writes, Do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, "'Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. "'But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. "'And what did that one do "'while he was seeking a godly offspring? "'Take heed then to your spirit, "'and let no one deal treacherously "'against the wife of your youth. "'For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, "'and him who covers his garment with wrong, "'says the Lord of hosts. "'So take heed to your spirit "'that you do not deal treacherously. "'You have wearied the Lord with your words.' Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or, where is the God of justice? So today, we'll do a lot of background work, and then focus for just a moment on verse 16, a part of this passage that is a direct quote from God, but rest assured that we will thoroughly cover the other verses next time. This is actually one of the only sections in Malachi where the prophet spends significant time in first-person speech, that is, not directly uh, quoting God, but the real guts of the passage comes in verse 16 where he does quote God who says, I hate divorce. And as uh, hard as that may be for some of you to hear, if you don't hear anything else I have to say, you need to hear what God said, which amounts to those three words. I hate divorce. And I know this really stings for some of you. I know these words sound harsh, particularly if you've already gone through with it. But remember that couples in this room may be considering divorce as we speak, and they need to hear this message loud and clear. Whatever else I say today, these words are true. God hates divorce. Now, before we look more closely at verse 16, I want us to take a holistic look at what the Bible says about divorce throughout its pages. While there's no way I can thoroughly cover everything the Bible says about divorce, I do want to try to briefly touch on um, what the writers of the Bible have said about this from different points in history. So, first of all, what did God say in the very beginning? In the book of Genesis, we need to realize that marriage was instituted and explained by God Himself right there in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And even in His very first statement about marriage, God made it clear that He intended the institution of marriage to be unbreakable. I won't read the whole passage, but the concluding sentence of God's initial pronouncement regarding marriage are these famous words. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh." This sentence has constituted the definition of marriage throughout the history of mankind. Notice God defines marriage as an equation. One man plus one woman equals one flesh. The two shall become one, a man and a woman, both of which, by the way, are created in the image of God, Genesis one Notice also the assumption that each person who would eventually marry another person would come from a father and a mother. Not a father and a father, or a mother and a mother. The fact that I even need to point this out in today's society is a testimony to how far we have fallen from God's design. One man marrying one woman, coming together to reproduce children who would grow up to do the same is not only the obvious natural order, but is codified in Scripture as God's plan from the beginning. Also recall that Jesus quoted this verse to make a further point. Jesus was God in the flesh. And they asked him whether or not divorce is ever permissible. His answer was to quote Genesis 2.24 and add that since God is the one who makes a husband and wife one flesh, nobody should ever separate them. Mark 10, Matthew 19. From the first holy union between Adam and Eve, marriage was understood to be permanent. That is to say, for the duration of our lives on earth. This is how it was in the beginning, before sin entered the picture. Lifelong marriage between one man and one uh, woman was God's clear intention. However, at some point in history, as part of the progression of evil, and because mankind is sinful to the core, divorce entered the picture. Now, who else spoke about marriage and divorce? Let's hear from Moses. By the time of Moses, divorce was rampant. Everybody was doing it, even in God's household. Even in that parallel to the church, the people of God, the results were atrocious, especially for women. I realize that today women can take care of themselves. And today women can also divorce their husbands. But things were different then. And Moses addressed men who were divorcing their wives, not to sanction them in their sin, but largely to help those women who had already been severely harmed by divorce, having been more or less kicked out on the curb left to fend for themselves, even in that hostile, sometimes barbaric world. So Moses said, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, And then Moses goes into a whole slew of contingencies to try to help mitigate the horrible effects of divorce on society. But he does mention the idea of divorce in a statement about how to do it if you're going to do it anyway. We will come back to this verse in a minute. But for now, take note that Moses never says divorce is a good thing. He says, when a man does this, Not, it's a great idea for a man to do this. In fact, if you follow the whole passage out, what you see is that rampant divorce had created a big fat mess among the people of God. And this mess was almost impossible to reconcile because basically everyone everyone was caught up in a massive web of broken relationships, leaving everything worse off than it was before. So, the people were already getting divorces. And Moses tried to moderate the mess that they had created, which was leading basically to the breakdown of society, which should sound familiar. As Jesus later explained, Moses did not intend to rubber stamp divorces being okay with God, though some had taken him that way. The guidelines Moses gave the people were actually designed to lessen the number of divorces while offering some protection to women who were being sent out of their homes by self-indulgent men. Next we hear from Ezra. Fast forward several hundred years from the time of Moses to the post-exilic period when God's people returned from exile in Babylon to resettle Jerusalem, enter Ezra and then Nehemiah, during whose time Malachi wrote the words we're currently studying. The issue of marriage and divorce comes up big again during this time. And let's take a look at how Ezra deals with it. Ezra discovers that the men of Judah have been divorcing their Jewish wives in order to shack up with pagan women who worshipped foreign gods. And when Ezra the priest finds out about this, he pretty much loses his mind. He becomes very upset. Did you know that a man of God can become upset? It happens. As Ezra knew, not only was this all strictly forbidden by the law of God, but it totally ruined everything that these restoration leaders like Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah were working toward. The remnant of Judah, the people whom God had chosen because of the faith of Abraham, still had the great promise of God within reach. They still had the covenant, the one that meant their offspring would be blessed. But now that they were divorcing their believing wives to marry unbelieving pagan wives, what would that mean for their children and God's plan? Beyond this, as Ezra knew and as Malachi knew, the Messiah was to be of the progeny of these people. So how would that work if they didn't marry others inside the faith? See, the whole program was dependent upon biblical marriage and biblical families, those very marriages and families which they were abandoning. In order to rectify the situation, Ezra sees no choice but to command that the men leave their new foreign wives and return, as Malachi later letter put it, to the wives of their youth. Let's read part of what happened as recorded in Ezra's book from chapter 10, verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now, therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That's right, as you have said, so it is our duty to do. Later in the book, it becomes even more clear that they are to send these women away, even with their children, and to return to their Jewish wives exclusively. That's rough to hear, particularly on the sending away part. But that is what God told them to do through the priest, Ezra. They were to put an end to these so-called marriages with pagan wives and return to their original wives inside the family of God. So, through Ezra, was God calling for the very kind of divorce that Malachi later said God hates? Were they divorcing these foreign wives in that sense? Some scholars believe so. However, my own view is that their separating from these foreign women in order to return to their Jewish wives was not exactly divorce as God defines it. For starters, we should note that the word God uses for separating from these pagan women in Ezra is not the same word He uses in Malachi to refer to the dissolution of a marriage between two of God's chosen people. I don't know if that proves my point, but regardless, based on the context, I do not believe that God actually honored what they had with these pagan women as marriage, at least not in the same sense as their previous marriages. I actually believe God saw these pagan unions as adultery or sexual immorality. For that reason, God did not consider separating from these pagan women to be divorced or something that He would hate. One application of the situation with Ezra is that there are times when something is called a marriage when, in God's eyes, it may not be so. For the record, I believe that to be the case case with so-called same-sex marriages. In that case, as in the case of adultery, a divorce, as God defines it, is not actually needed, but simply a separation, including the termination of what God says is sinful sexual activity. Similarly, in the case of the situation with Ezra, I don't think God was really calling for divorce, but the cessation of the sin of adultery along with the return to the actual wives who were very likely still single. Now, doesn't this all sound like a big fat mess? See, that's what we get when as a culture we disregard and disobey the word of God in order to follow pathways of sin and rebellion. Moses first dealt with the mess Now Ezra is dealing with the mess. And where did all this craziness regarding marriage and divorce lead? It led right up to a prophet named Malachi who comes right after Ezra. And let's see again what Malachi said. As Malachi begins to prophesy, the previous situation has not been fully resolved. At this point, God is so fed up with his people and the families of Judah are so wrecked that he decides to leave no more room for guesswork about his feelings on the matter and emphatically states, I hate divorce. You know, God puts up with a lot, but he has limits. And by the way, the next section is basically all about the judgment of God that is going to come on those who continue to disobey him in this particular way. Perhaps some of the people listened, but by and large, these problems continued and finally, until finally God had to send his son down here about 400 years later. And when he shows up, what does Jesus say about divorce? When the people asked Jesus about marriage and divorce, where did He point them? He pointed them right back to Genesis and what God had said about one woman and one man becoming one flesh. But He added the all-important phrase, Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. And what was their comeback? And what about Moses? Why did he offer a certificate of divorce? And Jesus basically said, Moses did the best he could to deal with all of you boneheaded dummies (laughs) but from the beginning it was never God's intention that anyone would get a divorce let's go ahead and read this from Matthew 19 verse 7 they said to him to Jesus why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away he said to them because of your hardness of heart Moses permitted you to divorce your wives but from the beginning, it, was not been, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, pornea in the Greek, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So Jesus says no divorce except for immorality. As I mentioned, the original Greek word here for immorality is pornea, which is better defined as sexual immorality. But the connotation here is also that unfaithfulness is involved. In other words, adultery. But where did Jesus get this exception? Did he get it? Did he just pull it out of thin air? No. Jesus got this exception straight from Moses, who was inspired by God to write it. But this is how we know what Moses meant in the phrase, some indecency. Remember when we read that in Deuteronomy 24? This was the reason given by Moses for an allowable divorce, if he finds some indecency in her. It turns out that there had been debates for centuries about what Moses had meant by this phrase, with some rabbis taking a narrow view, limiting divorce to adultery, and others allowing divorce for almost any reason, as if some indecency simply meant anything the man didn't like. Guess which view was more popular among the fellas? Yeah. But Jesus removed all doubt and interpreted what Moses had meant by some indecency as exclusively pornea which again means sexual immorality, and in context, sexual immorality of an unfaithful nature. That's what Jesus was doing in this passage, clarifying what Moses had meant by some indecency. Now, I do believe that since Jesus, along with inspired Moses, allowed for a legal divorce when pornea was in play, he also meant to allow for legal remarriage in that case. To me, at least, the exception applies to both divorce and remarriage. If it's acceptable, biblically, to go through with the divorce, then I would say it's also acceptable to be remarried. In fact, I believe the freedom to remarry, especially for the women in Moses' time, was the reason for the exception in the first place. I'm aware that similar passages in Mark and Luke do not include this exception, but unless you want to say that Matthew errantly added this, uh, which we cannot do, then we must accept that Jesus gave this exception. Regardless, what was Jesus really trying to do and to teach us here? He was trying to teach us that God hates divorce. As he says from the beginning, God did not want it to be so. The heart of this is that even if Pornia is involved, God prefers that the marriage not end in divorce. He longs to see reconciliation. Why? Because God hates divorce and also because He is a God of redemption. Now, there's at least one other person who addresses the issue of divorce, so let's hear from the Apostle Paul. Paul addressed the issue of what to do if you, a believer, find yourself married to an unbeliever. Let's read what he says about that. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians Chapter 7, verse 12. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, first of all, let me address the opening phrase where Paul essentially says, the following are my words, not the Lord's words. What he means here is that he is about to address a situation which the Lord Jesus did not address. He's not saying it's okay to disregard this inspired scripture as if it did not come from God, but that the following issue has not been previously addressed by the Lord while he was on this earth. That's what he means. Remember this especially in your study of the Bible. Absolute truths are absolutely true within their absolute limits. What does Paul do here? He gives another exception that the Lord had not given. Seemed pretty absolute what Jesus said, didn't it? except in the case of fornication, Paul gives another exception. How can he do that? We see here a second allowance for divorce in addition to the one Jesus gave, don't we? We do. But how can this be? Doesn't this contradict Jesus? Again, absolute truths are absolutely true within their absolute limits. I don't know if somebody else already said that or not, but they should have if I don't say so myself. We need, that's, a, that's a good principle for hermeneutics or biblical interpretation. We always need to consider the limits or the often unstated parameters of any truth statement. For example, I believe the exception clause Jesus gave was limited to biblical marriage. That, that being between two of God's children, people of faith, that is people with the Spirit of God living inside them. Jesus was talking about people of faith in Yahweh who were married, not just any two people on earth. This is why Paul can give a different exception for those who are not married to believers, saying it's acceptable to allow an unbeliever to leave the marriage if they want to leave. The connotation also being that God will not hold that divorce against the believer. They're not going to be in bondage. Presumably that they would then be able to enter a biblical marriage with another believer. This also points us back to Ezra, doesn't it? God told the men to leave the pagan women and go back to their original wives, their believing wives. He could do this because the rules were different when believers married unbelievers, which was never supposed to happen in the first place. Clearly, whatever they had with these unbelieving women in Ezra's time was not just the same in the eyes of God. Otherwise, he would not have asked for an end to those so-called marriages. Now, Paul is not speaking to the same audience as Ezra, and so he's not calling for exactly the same thing. Rather, he clearly wants them to stay together if at all possible. However, something allows Paul to say, but if he or she wants to leave, let them. I mean, why is it different in this situation than in a marriage between two Christians where the only exception is pornea according to Jesus and Moses? I do believe that the dissolution of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is less of an affront to God since he does not fully recognize this union and since it does not fully honor him in the first place. I believe it's clear that God has a higher standard for Christian marriage, which is also the reason that I will not knowingly perform non-Christian weddings or weddings between a believer and an unbeliever. I'll say once more that Paul is clear that it is still best for such a couple to stay together if at all possible. And in our Malachi text, we will see next week, and even in Paul's text, we also see that it's better for the children, even spiritually speaking, in terms of hopes for their salvation. To stay together, it's better. So, we pretty much touched on all the major spots in Scripture where divorce is addressed. I know it's been a lot of information, but I just felt like we needed the big picture. And that's part of why I turned this into two messages. Still, I have one caveat to give before we finally take a brief look into our Malachi text. Before I begin to preach the text that God hates divorce, I want to say this. God also hates terrible marriages. God hates abuse. God hates marriages that make him look bad. In other words, God's hatred of divorce does not excuse you from working on your marriage. While the solution to a bad marriage is not divorce, since two wrongs never make a right, if you're using the idea that God hates divorce to continue to treat your spouse like garbage, then in my book, you don't win any points for staying together. The fact that God hates divorce ought to drive you to invest everything you have into your marriage in order to avoid divorce. Otherwise, the reality is that it's only a matter of time until your commitment to stay together falls apart anyway. Christians should never use a commitment to stay married as an excuse for mistreatment and misery. If it's broke, fix it. Work at it. Don't let your marriage die. And if it does die, resurrect it. Let God resurrect it. Divorce does not happen overnight. Stop the divorce from happening in the future by changing now. Get counseling if you need it. Read books, watch videos, take a class, do something. Save your marriage with hard work and spiritual growth. Jesus is in the life-changing business. As mentioned, today's a lot of introduction to the topic, but let's just start to wade into the text, and let me state unequivocally that regardless of any exceptions or allowances, and regardless even of how crummy your marriage may be, you cannot get around the fact that verse 16 of Malachi 2 is a direct quote from God, wherein he himself says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Very, very quickly, I'm going to point out four truths about divorce from this verse. You might want to write these down or fill in the blanks in your listening guide. First of all, number one, just straight from this text, straight from that verse I just read, divorce is loathsome to God. Divorce is loathsome to God. We don't have to wonder how God feels about divorce. We don't get to say, you know, I think God's cool with it. We sure don't get to say, God is leading me to do this. Or I just know in my heart that Jesus is happy with my decision. Even if there are biblical grounds, the divorce itself is loathsome to God. End of story. Second, divorce is outwardly violent. That's what is meant by the phrase, and him who covers his garment with wrong. The word wrong may not be the most communicative translation. The main idea of this Hebrew word is actually violence. And in the context, we're talking about violence that soils your garment like with blood and gore. That's how extreme this imagery really is. The idea is that everyone can see what you have done because the carnage is all over your shirt. There's blood on your hands. Divorce is harmful. It hurts people. It is violent, and it does immeasurable harm to the people closest to you. Third, divorce is spiritually avoided. God says, take heed to your spirit so that you won't do this. For a believer, this means you need to work on your marriage by working on your spiritual life, your walk with God. That is your spiritual growth in Christ. You can pretty well know that if you are instigating divorce, you're not right spiritually. You need to take heed to your spirit in order to avoid divorce. Fourth, divorce is treacherous behavior. There's just no getting around this in Malachi. The word treacherous is used four times to refer to divorce in our translation, including here in verse 16. Divorce is treachery. It's betrayals to stab your closest one-fleshed companion in the back. God says, take heed to your spirit that you not deal treacherously with your husband or wife. So there you have four points straight from the text. Short and not sweet, but true nonetheless. the list. Now let me say this, and listen carefully even if you're mad, because this might help. I do believe there are times when the one being loathsome, the one being violent, the one who is not right spiritually, and the one who's being treacherous does not want to get a divorce, but just wants to keep on being a terrible person. In cases like this, I recommend separation. And you say, for how long? Well, that gets into a lot of nuance, and it depends on the situation. Depends on what happens. Today, I just wanted to point out that there is another option besides divorce, particularly in the case of abuse. Separation is generally the right option Get out of there. Protect yourself. Separation is not the same thing as divorce. Beyond this, what I'm also saying is that there are situations where the treacherous person is more than willing to sit back and stay married on paper to reap the benefits, even though he or she has already committed the divorce of the heart and a divorce of actions long ago. A divorce is treachery. According to Scripture, we might also turn that around to see who is really guilty of the divorce. Who's broken faith? Who's been faithless? Who's betrayed the sacred trust of the marriage covenant? God hates divorce. And I believe that includes unofficial ones. When you break your marital vows or if you fail for years to even be a husband or a wife to your spouse, don't be surprised if she or she eventually wants to make the divorce that you've already acted out official. Regardless, God hates divorce. One more thing. If you're the person being divorced and your spouse does not have biblical grounds and he or she refuses your repeated attempts at resolution and chooses divorce against your clearly stated will, hear me say that God holds nothing against you. You are a victim of someone else's sinful choice and should receive only comfort and encouragement from the people of God. In my view, any church policy to the contrary is legalistic and wrong. This would include the issue of serving as a deacon or a pastor in the church. I personally do not believe a person should be forever disqualified from ministry if he was divorced against his will. I'm well aware that some people are more conservative than me on that. By the way, be careful with your legalism. There's always someone more legalistic than you. Always. Oh, I don't even watch that movie. You know, the movie they show at the youth group. Oh, I wouldn't even watch that movie. You've got to draw some of these lines somewhere. Just telling you where I'm at. A husband of one wife. Doesn't necessarily mean what it's been interpreted to mean at some points. Just for the record, I've never been divorced, just so you know. I'm married 30 years. 31, I think. I better f- figure it out. Was it 30 or 31? She's not in here, so don't tell her. I it starts getting hard to keep track, I tell you. I'm happier. Lo- I'll I love my wife. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy love. <clears throat> Finally, to those who are facing the truth about divorce and thinking, what now? Particularly for those of us uh, Those who do not have, truly have biblical grounds for divorce, or even if you have those grounds, but there's any chance to save your marriage whatsoever, I would encourage you, I would beg you to stop the divorce, to repent, to return to your marriage. If it's so far in the past that um, that's just literally literally not possible, such as remarriage on his or her part, you have to seek forgiveness from God for whatever part in it you had through confession, make a commitment to not repeat the same mistake. And then I'll have to add this. I'll have to add this. If you do not have biblical grounds that is pornea or abandonment by an unbeliever, then you should not remarry. You should wait and hope. That's the least of what Jesus meant in Matthew 19 and Luke 16. No biblical grounds for divorce means no biblical grounds to remarry. That's hard, but that's the biblical teaching. And in fact, Jesus even says to remarry in that instance is to commit adultery. His words, not mine. What should be clear from today is this we have been doing it wrong. (laughs) Can you imagine? Folks, modern Christianity is in a sad state of disrepair. I'm sorry, it's true. We are worldly and impure. It's been on my heart a lot lately. In particular, I've been so burdened by how few people seem to be coming to Jesus in this country at this point. And I've determined that it is our fault. There will never be spiritual awakening until there's revival in the church. The battle lines have been drawn. Unbelievers are not on the fence. They have built walls. You know this. But why? I think one of the biggest reasons is they know Christians. And what they see from them is not the slightest bit appealing. We have lost the world because we are living like we are lost. We have no witness because the world has witnessed how we live. Our testimony is weak Because our weakness is our testimony. We need to hear God speaking through Malachi. The entire book drives us to the point where God says, return to me and I will return to you. Oh, that we would truly do so. And that we would truly be changed. In no area is this more needed than in our marriages. We have been unfaithful And so, we have lost faith. God help us. God change us. God save our marriages. Amen? Next week, we'll look more closely at the biblical text. and We'll hear more from God about how we can remain faithful in our marriages in so many ways. Everything depends on this. I hope you'll come back to hear the rest of the story. As I close, I want to call you to do something this week. Please pray for the marriages of Go Church. Let's just go ahead and narrow it to the marriages of our church. Please pray fervently. Pray for deliverance from sin in many cases. Pray for steps to be taken to restore a loving atmosphere in our homes. Pray for God to work miracles. Please don't forget. Set a reminder or something. Let's really pray daily for one week for our marriages and see what happens. Nothing could be more important. I want to enter into a time of prayer right now. I don't know if it's possible to play a little music or something. Whether or not, it doesn't matter either way. And I want to uh, ask people a particular burden about our marriages. Uh, Maybe it's your own marriage. Maybe you want to pray for somebody else's marriage. Um, Just in a show of support and also as a way of getting ourselves truly involved in fervent prayer. We're going to take like five minutes. And I just want to ask people who are willing to come up here. Find a spot. could be at the chairs. Those who can't kneel, maybe just come up to a chair if you can kneel. I don't care. Find a spot. And I just, there's nothing more important. So come on and and let's pray for our marriages. Everyone who will. Let's just spend a few minutes. Father, hear our prayers this morning. Save our marriages. Help us all to take a step this week towards a healthier marriage. Divorce doesn't happen overnight. But for right now, God, I pray uh, for any, any marriage that is in this room that's on the brink. And I pray that through your word and by your spirit, you'd pull it back. And help it to turn... Around in a spirit of repentance and start moving in the other direction towards a healthy marriage and away from divorce. And God, I'm going to say it. I pray that you would save Tully and Michelle's marriage. Do a miracle. Whatever needs to happen. Turn it around. And I ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www. GoChurchPNW.com. You can also connect with GoChurch on Facebook and Instagram.